1: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Steven Rodriguez, a PhD candidate in history at Vanderbilt University and a host on the network. Today, I'll talk to Paul Jankowski about his new book, All Against All, The Long Winter of 1933 and the Origins of the Second World War. Jankowski is the Raymond Ginger Professor of History at Brandeis University and the author of four previous monographs on topics ranging from the history of political scandals in France to the myths that have informed popular memory of battles of the First World War. In this latest monograph, Professor Jankowski provides a wide-angled account of a critical period of world history in which the world transitioned from the post-war to the pre-war and saw the disintegration of collective security and international institutions created after the First World War. Drawing on international history's methodology of multi-archival research, Jankowski constructs an elegantly written and deeply researched narrative history of this decline, but looking at both high-level diplomacy and the changing popular mentalities that influence many of the decisions of policymakers. Professor Jankowski, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you for that introduction.
1: My pleasure. I'd like to start um, by asking you about your training as a scholar and how your training has shaped your approach to writing about this period that you explore in the book. And I'd also uh, like to ask, considering this is your fifth uh, monograph, if I'm I'm mistaken. I, I'm also wondering how you view this book, uh, this latest book, fitting in to some of your earlier work. Are there a set of uh, themes or preoccupations that you think um, uh, run across your work?
0: Uh, well, I, um, I I don't know actually. It's a, it's an interesting uh, <clears throat> an interesting uh, question and a rare opportunity to talk about myself. <laughs> uh, which is a, a very uh to be valued um i um first part of your question was about whether my uh, 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 uh training uh as a scholar uh, has uh, survived into into this um into this late into this latter day um uh, project mm. and um I don't know, my, my, my training as a scholar, this is um, in, uh, at, uh, at Oxford, but I've spent all my time in France in the archives working on the 1930s and the Second World War and about collaborationist movements in, the, uh, in southern France, one in particular. And, of course, the, um, Oxford in those days, it may have changed since, was uh, hostile to, any, uh, to the broad brush approach. This really was a, a matter, it was deeply empirical, um, getting into the um, archives of a, of, a, of a place and a time and um, really immersing oneself in it uh, before one um, even knew what one wanted to do with it. Uh, now, my, my the other book that you so nicely described is hardly about that. It's really um, very broad brush. It looks at um a great number of countries in the world in um narrow time span, 1932 to 1933, and necessarily uh, foregoes uh, any uh, in-depth look at any single one of them. Uh, so in that sense, it's about as different as could be from what I was um, trained to do. Um but uh, in another sense, maybe a rather uh, abstract one, it's not. Uh, I think most of my work uh, has been not about the economic forces that shape some particular era or event, uh, or about the interests in play, uh, or about the um, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the 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 uh, the power game or the cultural uh, significance or whatever, but about um, collective beliefs uh, that uh, drove the events of the time. Uh, And in that sense, uh, I was working on that in my first book about Marseille, and um, I'm working about that now. Uh, I've uh, tried to look at the ways in which, in the early 30s, countries turned away from each other, and I... Try to show uh, that collective beliefs had a lot to do with this, or collective sentiments. So, in that sense, um, perhaps I'm still in the same, playing with the same fire. Um, I don't know if that's too abstract. We can pursue that, or um, does that? Does that? Yeah, happen? no,
1: that's very helpful. I mean, the collective beliefs part is 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 very interesting to me. I mean, obviously, it has its roots in the Anál school, but the kind of successive generations of the knowledge school have taken very different approaches to the, the history of mentalities, I guess would be the, the term. But I don't know, to what extent do you see yourself uh, in dialogue with that work or using that methodology? Or do you think you're doing something, So what you're doing an offshoot, but dis, is distinct from that? Or do you find that work uh, appealing or has it influenced your approach in, in your work?
0: I do find uh, much of the work of the analysts uh, appealing, very much so, especially the ones you mentioned, uh, the uh, historians of mentality, um, and uh, in that sense, some of the early analysts, uh, including Marc Bloch uh, and Lucien Febvre, were already dealing with with that, um, and then by the 1960s, people like Robert Mandelblit and others were uh, and, a little bit later than that, Michel Vauvel uh, were uh, indeed looking at, um, uh, at what they called mentalite. Uh, the difference, I think, is that they were either medievalists or especially early modern historians, and that really is a different world from the one I'm, I'm dealing with. They often had to disinter mentalities from the traces it left uh, as the Holders of those beliefs or the uh, of those attitudes were often illiterate. Um, they work on wills, but those wills were dictated, and so on. Uh, I'm dealing with a much more consciously articulated uh, set of beliefs and attitudes, not found in public opinion polls because we don't have those yet for this period, and even those are extremely treacherous; they're very difficult to use. But um, in the um, uh, uh, um, uh, vehicles of public expression, uh, uh, the press, uh, uh, um, um, among others. So I think it would be um, far-fetched to uh, uh, to really represent this as, a, as an attempt to transport the historians of mentalities and style into twentieth-century history. Um, however, flattering that. Um, that suggestion is uh, to me. Um, it's um, uh, in some ways I'd never really attempted to, to place this in any formal historiographical school. Uh, Indeed, the, the um, uh, in some ways this um, this book is intended for a more general audience hmm. than um, that of uh, professional historical scholars, hmm. um, and in that sense, I. I, I don't know that I, want, I can identify it with a, a single uh, uh, historiographical doctrine or practice, uh, but I can certainly talk, if you like, at some point yeah. um, about how I've written this and what I have tried to do, at whichever school that yes. might belong to.
1: Well, this this leads to perfectly into the next question I want to ask, which is about your decision to structure this as a narrative history. And I, I found it this particular narrative format, in which you pair foreign cities together, uh, very engaging, but but also analytically very powerful. And the structure of the book, the way it jumps from city to city and it juxtaposes cities, does a lot. I mean, just the, the structure itself provides a quite a lot of analytical payoff, it seems to me. And and I'm wondering if you initially envisioned this project as having a narrative structure. Was this something that organically developed through the research project? And just the last part of that question is, what are your larger thoughts on on narrative history, the advantages of narrative history, and perhaps the disadvantages? And are we we seeing a a kind of comeback of narrative history in the past decade or so, let's say?
0: I well did, if I well all right uh, I'll start with uh, the, uh, the yeah. first part of the question did, did I envisage uh, did I envisage this as a narrative history to begin with yeah um I I suppose so uh, but I would slightly qualify the description it's, it's narrative and descriptive mm. uh, in that sense um, the um, it is um, I I I I hoped and tried to. I've actually tried to do this in earlier work. I don't know if it worked or not, but I've tried again to present a narrative description that is itself an argument. Um, And if you can show something happening, if you can show, in this case, um, the um, leaders, say the the American president, um, bowing to public pressures not to get too involved in uh, European affairs, um, or if you can show uh, the some of the popular roots of Japanese militarism, or the appeal it might have had, and where, um, I, I suppose, narrating it, uh, you're also making a statement about it. And uh, in that sense, what I'm trying to do Uh, to come back to the earlier question you asked, is actually very, very old-fashioned in that um, we in uh, the historical profession today and um, graduate school and uh, in the graduate seminars we have, we have for at least 50 years now fallen completely under the sway of the social science model, haven't we? Uh, I, I would say we are told to present an argument, marshal the sources, describe the methods. As we go along, repeat the argument at each stage of the way as it develops, and repeat it again, lest the reader miss it. Um, then conclude it, repeat it, and summarize it at the end. At the beginning, we are asked to. Uh, situated with respect to existing liter- existing historical literature. This is a social science approach. We have been doing this for many decades now. Um, to actually um, present something as a story is very suspiciously like popular history. And therefore very uh, unpopular within the academy. Now I think that that can be moderated. That taboo. Uh, you'll find many, many mm. historians today who dislike it. Mm. Uh, I don't think it's coffee table history, um, and for that reason, for a very long time, military history was taboo in the academy. Mm. It didn't have to be written that way, in fact, um, and um, and and many of us didn't, but uh, that taboo came into play. So I felt that. With all that was going on in this narrow time frame of about one year, from 1932 to 1933, if I could show simultaneous developments taking place, as you say, in different parts of the world, and make it as clear as I possibly could what the parallels between them were, without actually beating the reader over the head every stage of the way explaining what I was doing, I might produce a book that was not only valuable, but also readable. Uh, now, it's up to the reader to say whether it works or not. Um, but I, um, I still have a, a certain hankering for the, 19th, the great 19th century historians. Um, when I speak of telling and showing, narrating and showing, uh, that are, those are quintessentially literary approaches. And In the 19th century, to write history was to write literature. Of course, the great, even the great ones, the Michelets and so on. The problem was what kind of sources did they use? What evidence did they have for what they were writing? But I would like to think that we can use the methods of 20th, 20th 21st century scholarship, the archival methods, the the uh, the, uh, the source base, and um, combine it with some very modest literary approaches to uh, produce a work that is uh, accessible to a wider Readership, while losing none of the academic rigor that's gone into producing it,
1: uh, and yeah, I mean, I I think it's it's very successful at that, and and just on this kind of note of the the taboo nature of of narrative history for many in the historical profession and the way popular history is criticized I mean you do quite an interesting thing at the beginning in the very beginning of the book which is you do the opposite of, of what a lot of uh, academics who end up writing trade press books do is you you, you make the, you show that the, the you're skeptical of the claim that the period you're studying here in the interwar years has it was very similar to today and for for you the the difference was that the way that mass Paul poli- and I'm paraphrasing here the way and quoting partially the way that mass politics, to quote here, eventually came to work against any international engagements other than the most transparently and immediately um, self-serving. Um, is that, would you say that, is that the core of, of the kind of argument you're trying to make and the way, uh, is that the goal also of, of these chapters, the way you've sequenced the chapters to show how this happened?
0: That's an important part of it. Yes, I mean, I, I, I tried to show in this book that in the uh, in this period, before we really got to the appeasement of the later nineteen thirties and the crises of the later thirties, um, something was going on that wasn't it, that would last, and that was the um, fragmentation, nations turning their backs on each other. The inward turn. Uh, and I wanted to show, when I say nations, I mean a certain number of nations, those that would be most directly involved in the outbreak of the Second World War some years later. Um, w- why so many others are left out is another matter. And I, I wanted to go on to show that that wasn't just the work of a few statesmen playing chess on the World Chess Board, or of uh, diplomatic policies and even of economic necessities, although that was important, uh, that there was uh, indeed a climate of domestic belief, uh, of which they were not just of which they were a part. Um, And um, so I I did want to show that. Um, And um, now the question of what it has to do with today, is that something mm. that you were...
1: You were uh, you yes. Sorry, yeah, I ended up merging two questions together, but I guess my point was is that um, and the question that it leads to is that a lot of uh, books that are intended for a popular audience that are about a topic that seems to have something to do with the present moment really try to exploit that, and they end up telling a story showing that the past was not so different. Yes. But you're showing that the past in fact was different. There are different set of conditions involved. Certainly there are are some parallels, but you're not making this kind of argument that uh, the, the the past is is more similar than we think it was, which I uh, appreciate and showing that the past yes. the past is quite yeah quite different from the present moment. So
0: I I am well. I think it is. I would I wouldn't be the only one uh, to um, uh, warn against drawing these parallels. Um, it's one of the. Unfortunate. It's it's one of the deep divisions between political scientists and historians mm. that we're very very reluctant to make them. On the other hand, you're quite right. Uh, historians do sometimes like to show that what whatever it is they're going to write about, uh, in the book about to follow in the book that follows it does have some, uh, some parallel with today. I mean, it it, it sounds like today in some way. And that may be a a device. It may also please a publisher. Um. And Sometimes it's not altogether it's not altogether untrue, although as you I mm-hmm. think say uh, we have to be extremely careful um, about it. Uh, I was always rather skeptical about <clears throat> the excuse me <clears throat> many of the uh, parallels that were drawn over the past ten years or so between the rise of populist authoritarian. Dictators or heads of state or government, nationalist, populist, authoritarian leaders. Uh, today and those of the thirties, um, it's it's something that you. I I certainly don't blame people for drawing, but we have to be very careful that we don't lose more by calling Trump Hitler than we gain. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Whether uh, those are those parallels are difficult to make, but. I do think with respect to the 30s and today, there is one that I, th- I think does bear some, uh, it, 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 it is, uh, is, is not altogether meaningless. And that is this uh, question of um, this process of national fragmentation. Or to put it a little differently, um, as we're talking about the present, uh, this year, the last spring and summer, the... Um, Demonstrations and uh, popular protests that broke out about racial inequality and racial violence and injustice in the US um, broke out all over the world, uh, in Latin America, in South Africa, and so on, in Europe. Uh, And yet they were breaking out just as the uh, world was continuing to fragment, as tariffs were being raised, neighbors were invading other. Uh, each other in some parts of the world, uh, barriers, borders are being closed to keep out COVID. So there is this tension between uh, transnational causes, um, which, which one was racial inequality, it was a big one, um, and uh, international fragmentation. Uh, uh, transnational causes. <clears throat> and, uh, a flourishing just as nations are cl- are turning their backs on one another. Now, there I think one can draw a parallel with the with the with, with I, what I'm trying to write about with the early '30s. Mm. So, you know, I, I quite agree with you about being very hesitant at first to draw such parallels. But there, I think there is something. These uh, transnational enthusiasms abounded in the early '30s. Uh, pacifism was one. Uh, uh, in the, um, I read about the disarmament conference in Geneva that opened in uh, February 1932. Uh, on its um, at, at its openings, people from all over the world came bearing petitions from organizations that were said to represent some 200 million people. Uh, revolutionary communism was another. Uh, New York. Uh, in, in New York, um, I suppose mostly intellectuals, but uh, communists, the, the, the uh, writers and others, believers in the cause, used to leave each other saying, meet me on the barricades. World government was another. In, in, in Britain, the League of Nations Union had 400,000 members. Uh, so this was the peak of all those enthusiasms, and yet it was also the moment that I'm saying a little writing about. The moment of national fragmentation and of beggar thy neighbor, every man for himself, and the devil take the hindmost. And it seemed to me that that parallel was too interesting to ignore. So sometimes, yes, I I I think it can be done.
1: Yeah, no, I mean I, th- I think it's done with with great uh discretion throughout. Um I want to get back to something that we've been talking around a bit, but but it's very important for the book which is the idea of popular opinion um, or public opinion or international opinion, all these variations. And this something you talk about, I think, in almost every chapter. And I wanted to ask two sort of smaller questions. One is that in what... So first of all, it's at the level, a lot of people, uh, intellectual historians, have looked at the idea of public opinion, public opinion polling uh, in a later era. But at this, at this point, I, I'm wondering how your... Historical actors are conceiving of, if they are, self-consciously, the idea of public opinion, and how, if that's the case, how that might, how that constrained or perhaps opened up certain opportunities for them in their kind of maneuvering at kind of a high level of diplomacy. So, on the one hand, how uh, I'm interested in how you're using it as a concept, but also how your actors are conceiving of it and how it uh, either limited or opened up options for them.
0: Well, that's a critical, that's a critical theme you're raising. And
1: yeah.
0: um, uh, public opinion is, as you hinted, uh, as you were I think, indicating, is the most incredible can of worms
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: for uh, anyone trying to deal with it. Uh, whether in, uh, say, the uh, uh, re- uh, uh, late 18th century revolutionary uh, uh, France or revolutionary Latin America or a uh, 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 mid mid twentieth century uh, Europe or wherever, um, and um, it depends on whether we have who, who uh, which public uh, who speaks for whom uh, what sources um, do we have polls. Does public opinion exist before there are polls or do polls invent it and so on uh, i can't answer all those questions but i um, in in this book to um, to return to the question you, uh, you uh, you're raising um, i I think it helps in these various countries i 'm writing about to distinguish between public sentiment and public opinion um, it, it it is clear i think to take an example that in in britain in the early 30s public sentiment was overwhelmingly pacific um it was um, unwarlike uh mm. i know there are many many different forms of pacifism but um the word means the word means many different things but the sentiment was avoid war um and then that was a very strong sentiment. Uh, on the other hand, doing so by disarming, as opposed to doing so by deterring, there we are entering the realm of opinion, of public opinion, and public sentiment could be could be pacifist, but public opinion could be uh, against disarmament, or one part of it could be. So, public opinion is a more articulated form. Uh, of, um, of, of of public sentiment when it is placed before a particular policy or a particular problem. And I think that governments were coming to understand that distinction here and there, which is the second part of your question. And to stick with this example, right. um, the British government knew this. It knew, it really... Since we'll, I'll return to the question of disarmament, but we could we could pursue this in other ways. Isolationism in America, for example, what that might mean, um, if it means still means anything. But the the government, by taking part really very actively, in the disarmament process at Geneva, was heeding that public sentiment. At the same time, by not going too far, by not giving away uh, too much. It was heeding uh, one part of public opinion, which, uh, particularly conservative, but well, well, it was mixed up between right and left. By um, uh, pursuing the cause of disarmament at Geneva and actively seeking some type of international agreement, the government was heeding one kind of, um, uh, one was heating public sentiment, But I'll be very careful about what it would do there, whether it would abolish military aviation, for example, or how far it would go in um, making concessions to the Germans and so on. There, it was uh, heeding different forms of public opinion. And that public opinion, uh, again, we don't have polls, and it may even be a good thing. I wouldn't go so far as um, um, the French sociologist who said public opinion doesn't exist. But the um, that kind of public opinion we can indeed, in countries where such press such a press exists, uh, start to study it in an articulated form in different different opinion organs and different newspapers, different columns and editorials and uh, publications and speeches and so on, and uh, that is um, not necessarily when we say when we when I when you call that public opinion or popular opinion, you are not saying that it represents the, um, conscious attitudes of the great masses of those who, uh, who may have read these papers, but it represents it at that intermediate level. Does that, any of that make any, any
1: yeah, no, I think that that's, that's very helpful. I mean, and I'm also thinking, and, and I wonder if you have thoughts on this, but my, my sense is that of some intellectuals at the time, uh, particularly I'm thinking of, uh, the, a very famous book, I think that sold quite well in the late 20s, uh, Ortega y Gasset's The Rebellion yes. of the Masses, <laughs> yes. and his diagnosis of the problem of modern society of being the mass man. It, it, I'm, so I, I'd imagine that that does factor in here. And, and I'd imagine that some of the historical actors you're looking at, although they're not necessarily intellectuals, or some of them, I guess, are as well, but. Um, is this something, a concept that is informing many of the discussions, um, uh, this, this fear of the masses and, and I guess the larger crisis of, of the modern era would, would be the underlying thing if we're, uh, to take Ortega Gasset's, uh, line. Of uh,
0: yeah, um, fear well, well let's say, can, can we, uh, 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 awareness of masses. Mm, uh, mm. uh, I I think very definitely, and I uh, and to a certain extent. Uh, Ortega y Gasset was a was a philosopher, of course, mm. uh, but that's a very important book, even if some have called it Nietzsche light, <laughs> uh, because of the for some obvious obvious reasons. But the, uh, um, I, I I I think the question you raise is relevant. Uh, governments were aware of mass opinion. Uh, they knew it mattered. And this was the case in all kinds of very, very different regimes and societies. I don't think anyone was more aware of it, for example, than Joseph Stalin. Mm. Uh, he, was, he was daily trying to shape uh, mass opinion. He was daily trying to answer it. Uh, but at the same time, when you see the evolution of Franklin Roosevelt from the 20s to the 30s, from his ardent um, support for the League of Nations and American activism abroad in, the, uh, in, 19, in uh, 1920, to his um, growing silence over the 1920s, and then his complete, uh, really, um, his near a uh, uh, passivity um, towards at least Europe, not Latin America, but at least Europe, it is very difficult not to think that he is acutely aware of where he thought American mass opinion was drifting. Um, is that the kind of phenomenon that you're asking about when we talk about the mass? Yeah, yeah,
1: but uh, I, I guess that, yeah, uh, I, I guess I'm seeing, it, it, I guess I'm asking really, so is massive mass a mass, the mass man or the the masses are they seen as both a a political opportunity um, and also a huge threat that if you you know if you if the masses have too much say or influence over uh, world diplomacy then that presents risk and not just world diplomacy but especially in the national context that you look at but uh, uh, the the masses if uh, if one could get a sense of what they want and anticipate it uh, is able to actually use this to one's advantage as a politician, perhaps. Uh,
0: Yes. I, I think uh, this has been happening certainly since the 19th century, since we're talking about international relations here, which I suppose in the conventional sense are really Mm -hmm. treated as well until, till recently, this has changed. Um, as the relations between states, between governments, um, the um, advent of democracy, by, by which I mean mass participation in, in, um, in government and the state, whether it's a liberal or illiberal democracy, n- necessarily transformed the nature of international relations. Um, if we want to study the um, attempts to deal For example, with Hitler, once he came to power, um, if you want to understand appeasement, I think it does help to to, to see the government as being attentive to what it thought uh, opinion at home wanted or would take or would approve of. Uh, in a way that it would not have, for example, in the 18th, it's, in the eighteenth century, it's not that it never mattered before. I mean, in, 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 there, there 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 were crowds in the Seven Years' War in Paris, for example, that had very strong views on what was happening. But as a as a, as, a, um, uh, as a as a as a constant and sometimes determining force, I think this is a uh, this is a product of nineteenth and twentieth century history. Uh, in um, uh, in uh, uh, for 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 the most part, uh, I find it very difficult to deny that in any way. Uh, certainly, um, in the First World War, now I think you were. I think there was another part to your question. It was whether they they they, uh, they sought to exploit it or whether they thought to uh, whether whether they feared it. Yeah, I I think both. I think clearly both of those are. Um, are um are uh, would be correct, and the, the historian of, uh, of uh, this ne- needs to explore them, yeah. but we can see this even in attempting to influence the uh, mass opinion of the other, the potential adversary or the potential ally, uh, the, even b- before the first world war, paying quite a lot of attention uh, to the um, to the daily newspapers of the other. Uh, this is a sign uh, of of that of that new reality uh, that were um, um, the the, uh, the new reality that you've raised.
1: Yeah, and of course, uh, it didn't yeah. stop.
0: The war broke out. It continued. The, the, the Germans trying to, to suborn French newspapers and so on.
1: Well, since you mentioned newspapers, I, I thought this might be a good time to to just talk about your your methodological or specifically the archival work you did for this project. Um, in many chapters, I mean, you're working directly in the archives, but also in some cases you are uh, reading, um, uh, I guess, reports from archives that are reporting on world newspapers. And I guess that's partially how you get it, the public opinion uh, part. But could you just talk a little bit about what it was like to, to, to do the archival work for this book and maybe some challenges uh, that it presented given its scope?
0: Yes, uh, that, that was a problem for me because I, um, archival, uh, if um, to distinguish between archival, that is to say, unpublished uh, material, and um, and published material, uh, the um, there, I, I, I was uh, uh, limited by languages. I mean, I could handle the European, uh, the uh, uh, French, German, Italian, and so on, but uh, Japanese and Russian are a real problem for me, um, but. When using diplomatic archives, what I tried to do was to uh, get at the uh, reports that embassies and consulates sent to their home governments about what they thought was going on. Uh, As you probably know, a lot of these um, uh, diplomatic archives are are published in massive series the uh, Foreign Relations of the US, the the French Diplomatic Archives, the British, and so on. Mm. But those are selective. They don't publish everything. Uh, And uh, to read the archives from some of the American consulates in Germany, read the records there, the the messages they sent, um, or from, say, uh, the American legation in uh, in Latvia, which was uh, covering the Soviet Union until diplomatic relations were restored, um this is very valuable. The most valuable of all I found in, in that respect were the French, for say the countries of uh, Eastern Europe, Hungary, for example, I found it, I would have found it difficult to um what without a research assistant, um uh master uh, any uh master a lot of the Hungarian material. But often what um uh what the um the french embassy was was saying the way it was analyzing events frequently on a day by day basis was uh, very very useful to me obviously on its own i, I sometimes had to check this but uh I, I always did i was able to use some help for um for russian uh, russian material um uh, so i use diplomatic sources in that way and, and i think that's somewhat different in that most diplomatic archives traditionally have been used to study the to trade to uh, relate the um uh, to uh to um uh narrate the history of intergovernmental relations uh, this i at this time mm-hmm. i was using them uh to um unearth um daily realities of life in the countries uh, to which these diplomats were posted. Um, well, there, there were the, the other part, I think, to the, to the question was about the press. Yes, how did mm. I, well, I can't yeah. read the Japanese press, but there you're correct. I, I was using, and this was again from the French archives, they had for 1932 and 33 a very, very detailed summary day by day of the Japanese press and what the different newspapers were saying. Uh, And once I've um, I've familiarized myself with the Japanese press about which particular interest group or sector of opinion this or that newspaper represented, it was very valuable to um, read the French daily summaries, which were frequently translations of uh, editorials uh, and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. In uh, countries like the Soviet Union or fascist Italy, obviously, we're not not dealing with anything like a free press. But um, it still has a use all its own. You can decode official propaganda. You can see what they're not talking about, the shift in tone of um, what they are. Uh, and also you can uh, uh, discern what they want their own people to believe. So this is a somewhat different use of it. Uh, there, when I couldn't read the Russian press, I used uh, weekly summaries of it from uh, diplomatic archives, again, including the French, <laughs> but there were some others as well. Um, so I don't know,
1: those are some of the ways that I um, I use these materials.
0: Those are all primary sources, that's true. Hmm. Some published in the press, obviously published. I'm yeah. some, sorry, some unpublished in the press, clearly uh, published.
1: Well, that's very helpful. I mean, just in terms of, you know, for thinking about, you know, the, the real challenges uh, one is presented with when trying to write, an international history or a transnational history, you're limited, of course, firstly by languages. Um, and then perhaps the geographical, uh, burden of having to go to some of the archives. But I mean, in your case, it seems that it was quite feasible to have in the, the, the richness of the French archives and having the things translated, um, made this, this possible. And otherwise perhaps it would have been quite, uh, I mean, it, it indeed is an undertaking already, but, um, would have been almost impossible to to just based on the travel and the mastery of so many different language uh, families, languages from different language families, which very few people uh, can do. So, um, yes, very few. yeah, yeah.
0: And in the case of the French, the the, um, the reason they had such good people in uh, Eastern Europe is because these countries mattered a great deal to them at that time: uh, Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Romania, Yugoslavia. They paid a lot of attention to them. Um, so in that sense, I was fortunate, um, um, and, um, uh, and some of the, um, anyway, I won't dwell on this, but some of the American material from Japan, I found very, very interesting, um, including the, uh, milit- uh, uh, uh you, not so the state department archives, uh, of course, but also the military intelligence, which, um, reported quite extensively on Japanese politics, those are sitting in College Park in Maryland. Mm. I don't know if you've used these and these kinds of things in your work on Latin America. I expect you have. Yeah. Um, uh,
1: uh, yeah. Yeah. Some of them. And, but, but this is, this is also helpful to, to, to look out for these types of uh, sources in the, the future. Um, we are coming up on our last few minutes. So I wanted to just end by asking you about, you, you've finished the book or the book has just been published. And, and what are you working on currently? Have you moved on to a, a project that t- directly relates, or are you moving in a different direction for the next uh, book or project?
0: Yeah, I, um, I, I don't have a definite project in mind, but when I, when I wrote this book, uh, I was thinking of this as part of a continuing study of how the world descended into chaos in the 1930s. And I was very taken with the idea of choosing a narrow timeframe in this case, 32 to 33, because to come back to one of your earlier questions, um it allowed for it allowed for power it, it allowed for effective narration and description. Um the 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 more stretched the time frame, the more abstract the treatment becomes necessarily. If you have a narrow time frame, you, you have real, real people in real places. Um, and these, and the, the, the other aspect was the simultaneity, show things going on simultaneously. And I, I thought that perhaps something like that for later in the 30s, showing what had happened by then might, um, might, be, uh, might be possible, um, building on what I had learned about the beginning of the decade. So I'm still thinking about that. Um, I don't know if it's a good idea or not. I certainly don't want to do the same thing all over again. <laughs> um, but in uh, what happened in the early 30s, the war was not yet inevitable. Uh, it really, it was not a dead certainty um, by any means. Um, by the late 30s, it was. So s- something has changed. And if I can use some of the same themes and not retell the story which has already been told, um, about the the um uh, about Hitler and about appeasement and um about the uh how the Japanese got themselves involved in a disastrous war in china and so on um then maybe there'd be something uh something there so i'm still sort of toying with that i i i don't know but um um, I should ask someone, including you, if you ever have any thoughts <laughs> about this, tell me what, a, tell me what, a,
1: I, well, I, I mean, I, I would just, I mean, agree. I mean, this is, uh, such a, a fertile area for, for scholarship and there's so many different directions one could take it. So, it, yeah, I mean, it seems to me that it, it would warrant a further exploration and yeah. And, and I, I do like this, <clears throat> this technique of focusing on a short time period and I think it allows for, you know, the kind of level of detail and, and I mean in terms of the the way you describe things in the book and the focusing on specific events that you it, it allows for that possibility where uh, focusing on a larger time frame might, might it might be impossible to do such a thing yes yeah, um, so I, like, um,
0: you know, I know we're running out of time I, I just wanted to add about yeah. that that um, narrow time frame a broad geographical spectrum mm. but This book is in no way the one we've been talking Mm. about. Is in no Mm. way a history of the world in nineteen thirty-three because half the world is left out. Yeah, the southern half. Uh, It's 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 really um, it's really about a particular. It's already in a way rather selective, in that it looks at countries that were directly involved in the outbreak of the war later on, and in that sense, that that left me uh, not really spending a lot of time on say Britain's dominions or Britain's. The um, British Empire, or in Latin America, of course, which was actually quite actively involved in the League of Nations, mm. but it becomes two um, or some Latin American countries. Maybe. Yeah. Um, and um, if I were to do this or later in the thirties, I think that that would that would change because by then I think we have a, a probably a be the same cast of characters. They might be joined by some others, but um, it still is not meant to be world history in that sense. Mm. Uh, world. I know that world history does not necessarily mean history of the world, but um, this certainly is not that.
1: Well, in, in any case, I, I think, look forward to, to reading wh- whatever you end up uh, deciding on to, to focus on in your next uh, project. But let me just thank you for, uh, for talking. I think uh, this is a really fascinating conversation and I uh, enjoyed learning about the, the, the writing process behind the book and some of your methodological choices and all the rest. Well, thank you very much.
0: Thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this. It's been uh, very enjoyable.